We've talked about a myriad of topics. Today, we're going to talk about another one. Um, And to do so, we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 5, a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. All right, so in Matthew chapter 5, we see this verse, verse 48, may be familiar to some of you. Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, We're going to read 28, I'm sorry, uh, verse 21 through the end of that chapter, verse 48. This section is known as the sixth antithesis. So Jesus outlines six things here. And to give a little contextual picture, he's talking to a Jewish community who are very familiar with the Old Testament, very familiar with the law of Moses. And so Jesus starts each of these sections, each of these teachings, which is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Some would say actually the centerpiece of the sermon. And it's called the sixth antithesis because Jesus says, you've heard it say this, but I'll tell you something else. And he compares six laws of Moses, six things, well, five and then one maybe that was a a common sort of like rabbinical teaching, a common knowledge thing that's not technically in the law of Moses. He takes these common knowledge laws and understandings of what it means to be in God's kingdom, and then he contrasts it with something different. He starts with murder. The very first thing that we see happen in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, what's the first thing that happens? Cain kills his brother. Murder is the first sin in the Bible. I think that's telling. And here Jesus deals with this very same topic. And he says in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to people long ago, to the ancient Jews, You shall not murder one of the Ten Commandments. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus says, you've heard it say, don't murder. But I want to tell you that in God's kingdom... Right? This, is the, this is the overarching context. Right, We're talking about the kingdom of God. What is it like to be in this kingdom as compared to the kingdom of the world? Jesus says, in this kingdom, not only should you not murder, but we actually shouldn't harbor anger and resentment and bitterness in our heart. And he says, if we do, we're subject to judgment, just like murderers. And he says, therefore, if you are offering your guilt because of life in the kingdom of God is like this, if you're offering your your, uh, gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come offer your gift. Once a year, every Jew goes to Jerusalem to offer their sin sacrifices. He says, If you're on your way, you may have traveled for days to get to Jerusalem, to worship God, to be in his kingdom. He says, if you remember that somebody has something against you, it's more important for you to go get reconciled with them than to continue your worship. He says, that's what life in in the kingdom of God is like. I hope that 
your minds are replete with application for us today. Jesus is saying, because in God's kingdom, we shouldn't even harbor anger or resentment in our hearts. He says, don't even come to church if you know that there is something broken in a relationship. He says, that's more important. That's what life in God's kingdom is like. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way and your adversary or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus says, you've heard it say, don't murder people. He says, I tell you, live for reconciliation. Even if your adversary, your enemy has something against you, seek out peace with them. Seek out reconciliation. Don't go to court. Don't have a judge try to arbitrate between you two. You go and seek reconciliation, even with your adversary. The second antithesis, adultery. Verse 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Another one of the Ten Commandments. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I remember the first time I read this in my early 20s. I thought it was a typo. I was like, hold on, dude, give me your Bible. Let me make that, because this one ain't right. I thought to myself, no way, come on. I mean, not committing adultery, all right, fine, I guess, sure. We could all agree there's some moral standard there. I get, but what? Jesus is actually applying the same ethic from murder to adultery. He says, even in your heart, in your mind, internally, this is what it's like to live life in the kingdom of God. He says, guess what? If your right eye causes you to stumble, after talking about lust, he says, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand, your good hand, your dominant hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus was serious about hell. He said, it's pretty serious. You don't want to go there. You'd rather lose your eye and your hand. Now, we could all debate about the nature of hell and, you know, all kinds of theological debates, and we could have Tamara up here teaching us about the theology of hell and all of that, but regardless of the differences of how people view hell, Jesus says, you don't want to mess with it. Now, of course, we can still sin with one eye, right? You could sin with no eyes. Did you know that? Did you know blind people can sin? Did you know quadriplegics can sin? Did you know you could sin without a hand? So clearly, Jesus here is being metaphorical. He's not being literal. Some early Christians, actually, in the church father writings, just a few hundred years after the New Testament, they actually did this very thing literally. They gouged out eyes and cut off hands, and they wrote about their regret because it didn't fix their sin problem. Jesus is being metaphorical but his point is still real. That sin is in our heart 
that adultery starts internally. And he says, if we don't deal with sin in a radical way, as radical as something like gouging out our eye and cutting off our hand, if we don't deal with that which causes us to stumble radically, he says, you're going to regret it. You would rather deal with your sin radically, even in ways that are crazy to the world, than the alternative. The choice we have is do we believe Jesus? Do we believe what he says about hell or not? He continues on about divorce now. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You know, Jesus and his disciples get into this topic again later on in chapter 18 of Matthew. And his disciples are like, but Moses said that we could give a woman a certificate of divorce for anything. And Jesus said, it was not this way from the beginning. This is Matthew 18. Here in Matthew 5, he says, you've heard it say, men in a dominant patriarchal society, that you could discard a woman for any reason that you deem. Jesus says, nope. In God's kingdom, you cannot divorce easily. You cannot discard a woman for any reason you desire. That is not what life is like in God's kingdom. You can imagine why the disciples responded the way they did. This is a hard teaching. In Matthew 18, he said, well, then maybe no one should get married. And Jesus said, only few can embrace this message. Again, you've heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Meaning, if you make a vow to the Lord, you must fulfill it. There are even recordings in the Old Testament of men making foolish vows before the Lord and then trying to fulfill it, even to kill their own family members. Jesus says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, the holy city, the place where God dwells on earth, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard it said, if you make a vow to the Lord then you need to honor it. Jesus says, you need to honor your word no matter what. In the kingdom of God, life in his kingdom is not just fulfilling something when God's name is on the line. It's living with integrity and honesty and consistency all of the time. Could you imagine if we all lived with integrity and honesty at our workplace this week? And our yes and our no was simply good enough because we lived that out consistently 
If we said yes, we did yes. If we said no, we did no. Could you imagine what it would be like if there were salt in the earth that lived like that all the time? How God and his kingdom could be displayed? That we don't have to swear. We don't have to make an oath. We don't have to trump up our word because we have integrity, because we live honestly and consistently, even if it costs us something, even if we have to sacrifice that promotion or that goodwill with the boss, or we have to be estranged from a relationship because we won't partake in some particular thing. He continues on in verse 38. He says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Did you know that for that context, that was radical? The teaching in the law of Moses that you could only revenge equally what was given was radical. That there were limitations on vengeance so that vengeance wouldn't spiral out of control. We have a Hatfield in this church. You guys ever heard of the Hatfields and McCoys? This is a classic American example of when an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth was not obeyed. Even thousands of years later after the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was radical in human history to give limitations to vengeance. But Jesus says, guess what? I tell you, Don't even resist an evil person. Don't just check and sealing your revenge, but rather don't even resist them at all. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, a sign of disrespect, a sign of superiority and inferiority, guess what you should do? Turn the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, You should take them to court and get their shirt instead. Oh, no, sorry. That was my typo. Hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, this now would have been referring to the Roman legions in their context. If a Roman guard walked up to any citizen, especially the Jews whom they didn't like and whom they had conquered, you had to do whatever the Roman guard or soldier would tell you. And often they would make you carry stuff for them, you know, because without vehicles and tanks and armored divisions, that's kind of an important asset, getting stuff from here to there. And he says, if somebody asks you to go a mile, go a second one. This is radically different. The kingdom of God and life in it is unlike any other life and kingdom in the world. Jesus says, not only have you heard that there should be limitations on vengeance, you shouldn't take revenge at all. He said, if somebody is wronging you, go a second mile. If someone is mistreating you or unfair, keep serving. Keep submitting yourself. He says, if somebody desecrates you or defames you or hurts you or slaps you, don't retaliate. And he says, if somebody steals something from you, give them more than what they took. 
Does that sound American to you? What if you had some politician in the next election stand up and say, you know what? We're going to enact laws that if somebody steals something from you, everybody has to give them more than they took. How many people do you think would vote for that guy? It's literally what Jesus is saying. You can see why nobody voted for him, right? We have this misconception that Jesus ended up on the cross because everybody really liked him and he was sweet and nice. He proclaimed a kingdom ethic. He proclaimed a way of being human that is so counter to being human that no humans want to do it. Except for a few. And I'm afraid that in a Christianized culture of the American West, we have conflated the kingdom of God with something else. And we've duped ourselves into thinking that we are living in the kingdom of God when we're suing our enemies. We're striking them back. We're taking vengeance. We're committing adultery and lust. And we have made ourselves think that this is the kingdom that Jesus talked about. That's not unique or new to us, and I doubt we'll be the last ones to do it. But in verse 43, we have the final sixth antithesis. It's interesting that there are six. Does anybody know the common number found throughout the Scriptures to represent completeness and wholeness? Seven. He says in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Loving your neighbor was from the Mosaic law. Hating your enemy was never there. Most scholars believe that this would have been a typical rabbinic tradition in Jesus' day, that most people would have heard the teaching, love your neighbor, coupled with, but hate your enemy. Who were the enemies of the Jews in Jesus' day? The Romans. Why were they the Jews' enemies? Because they enslaved them, essentially. I mean, they were nice slave masters, you know. They let them keep worshiping their gods and stuff just as long as they kept paying Caesar. This is how the Roman Empire got so big. But he says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Verse 48 is meant to be a summary of the six antitheses. Jesus says, God is perfect in that he loves everyone equally. He sends rain and the sunshine on everybody equally, whether you're evil or wicked. Be like God, Jesus says. I think that loving your enemies may be the most difficult 
challenging, unhuman teaching of Jesus out of all of them. Jesus said, you have heard it say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, no, guess what? You need to love even your enemies. So what does it mean to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect? It's about love. It's about love, not just in a feeling or an emotion or an affinity. It's about action. It's about our lives producing something that is equal to love. The Sermon on the Mount here is very well known in our culture. I remember growing up hearing, you should do to other people, John, the way that you want them to do to you. Imagine my surprise when I read the Bible and realized that Jesus had said that. I just thought it was a momism. The Sermon on the Mount has baked its way into our cultural fabric and we don't even recognize it. It's good in some ways, and in some ways that's really not so helpful. The Sermon on the Mount is not just about us. It's not just about behavior. If it was, then we would think, oh, well, this is just some idealistic teaching from Jesus that's not really attainable, and we just go back to our normal lives, our normal kingdom of man lives, not kingdom of God lives. But instead, the Sermon on the Mount is about Jesus himself. It's not just about us. It's not just about how we behave. Jesus isn't setting forth a new law and replacing the old one. Right before this, he says, no, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus isn't putting forth this new law and behavior modification. Rather, this is about discovering a living God. A living God that is loving, that is nonviolent that is non-retaliatory, and that we witness this God in the life of Jesus himself. It's about discovering and learning to reflect that love of that God ourselves into the rest of the world around us that needs it so desperately. Right now, men between the ages of 20 and 60 in the Ukraine are unable to leave their homeland. Every man is being given a machine gun in their hands and told to protect their homeland from the invading Russians. They're being told to kill people who are trying to kill them. Some of these men undoubtedly are Christians. And some of these men undoubtedly who are invading under Russia's government and regime are Christians as well. The Sermon on the Mount has application right now today, not just in Ukraine, but all throughout the world, even in our own lives. Jesus did not call us to kill our enemies, but to love them. And it is easy for me to say, standing here, relatively with no threat of my life, to say it. But I hope and pray that I would have the strength to live it What would we do if we were called to kill other people in light of Jesus' teachings of what his Father's kingdom is like? Jesus himself showed us 
what it looked like to love enemies. Jesus himself refused to go the way of anger and violence. Jesus himself refused to retaliate. Jesus himself refused and told his own friends not to defend him or themselves while in the threat of death in the garden. You can see why they all ran away. They're like, no, we're not dying with you, Jesus. I'm willing to die if you let me fight, but I'm not going to willingly die. And they all fled. Jesus himself suffered and died under the hands of his enemies. His own people, the Jews, as well as the Jews' enemies, the Romans. Jesus did not retaliate, but rather loved and prayed for them, even while he was hanging on a cross. And so in Jesus, we see someone who not only achieves our own reconciliation and salvation to the Father, not just as an ideal that we're supposed to strive for, but rather as an example that we're now supposed to embody. This isn't just like, oh, thanks, Jesus, for doing what we could never do, which is true. But Jesus says, come follow me. Come do what I did. Live under the reign of the king. Peter, the disciple who in the garden was told to put away his sword, for all who live by the sword will die by the sword. You familiar with that passage there in the garden? Peter, the same disciple who cuts off the dude's ear, who either had impeccable aim or really bad aim, one of the two. I'm going to go with bad aim. Jesus tells him to sheathe the sword. That's not how we live in this kingdom. That same man, Peter, later on, many decades later, when he wrote his epistles, would put it this way. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2, starting in verse 19. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Do you know anyone that bears up under the pain of unjust suffering? Even right now in our culture, in our society, in our political system, we have people and groups of people who suffer at the hands of injustice. Peter, after being told to put away the sword, years later would say, it is commendable for people to suffer injustice peaceably because they're conscious of God. He says, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. This is very similar to what Jesus just said, right? If you love those who love you, what difference are you than the pagans, the people who don't live in the kingdom of God? If you only love or treat those who treat you well, what are you doing different than, than flesh, humans, who have fallen from God? The way Peter says, 
He says, you know what? If you suffer and endure it, even when you're doing what's right, you're living in the kingdom of God. He says, to this you were called, to this type of life in the kingdom of God you were called, this nonviolent, non-retaliatory, suffer at the hands of injustice kind of life. Why? Because Christ suffered for you and for me. Leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, this is the kingdom of God alternative to violence, retaliation, and vengeance. You want to know what the alternative is? Instead, Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you and I have been healed. For we were all like sheep going astray. But now, now we live in this kingdom of God and have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. This strikes at the heart of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. What do you believe about life and death? Are you willing to entrust yourself to a God that you believe judges justly even to your death at the hands of your enemies while not retaliating? Would you and I follow Jesus? The church is all conflated. We think following Jesus is about going somewhere on Sunday, trying to be nice people and singing songs. All the while, we're happy and ready to kill our enemies. We're happy to equip and arm other people to kill their enemies. All in the name of God. Jesus had something different to say. I know that this is touchy. We will continue to embark on what it looks like for Jesus to live in the kingdom of God. I want to encourage us, just like the disciples who follow Jesus, we might not get it all at one time. We might not understand or even fully embrace, appreciate, or believe what Jesus says, but let's keep following. Let's keep dedicating ourselves to say, you know what? At least we can start here. That Jesus died for us. If you can start there, he can lead you and he can lead me to this life of nonviolence, of non-retaliation, a life of sin that does not begin in the outward like they had heard it was taught, murder, adultery, but rather that life in the kingdom would help us to deal with our inner selves, the thought life, the attitudes, the anger that we even have towards one another. There is where we can live with God and his kingdom. Again, I want to encourage, if you haven't,
please check out this book series by my friend Tom Jones called The Kingdom of God. In particular, his third volume, Learning War No More, talks about some of these principles in greater detail. If you'd like to check them out, please do. But I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful that all of us are here, hopefully, to try to pursue what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, not just the kingdom of the world that we find ourselves in. And sometimes it's easy for those two to get confused, right? It's easy for us to think, well, oh, this is a Christian nation and we're God's people. And the Jews thought that too. Jesus said, you've heard it said, but let me tell you something else. Let's listen to Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we need you. Uh, we cannot be perfect as you are perfect without your help. Your love is just crazy. The fact that you would send sunshine and rain on the evil and the wicked as well as the righteous equally is just mind-boggling to us. That is not how we would run the universe. That's not how we run our countries. That's not how we run our own lives. Help us, God, to be so moved by Jesus dying for us that we would be willing to live with him, even if that means dying at the hands of our enemies. Thank you for the Christian brothers and sisters in Ukraine and Russia who are not picking up arms, but are rather picking up aid. They're bandaging the wounds. They're, they're trying to infiltrate food and supplies behind enemy lines. They're trying to live in your kingdom in the midst of death and chaos. Strengthen them, Father. Help us to be inspired by their example as they follow the example of their Lord. And help us, God, in our time and in our place to be light and salt in the world to show what your kingdom is truly like. We love you, Father. We're not deserving. No one is deserving. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But thank you. Thank you that you love us so deeply. Help us to love and to be perfect just like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.